Um, this evening, I'm going to be talking about three major cancers of women, uh, and these are very serious diagnoses for people to get, but as I will be going through, the outlook for two of them have got substantially better, and the third partially better over the last uh, few decades. Now, descriptions of women dying of cancer are uh, as old as recorded history. Um, I've given here, for example, the, the extraordinary Empress Theodora, uh, who is reported to have died of cancer. But since that time, the proportion of women who will die of cancer or have severe cancer, which impinges on their lives, has steadily gone up. Not because uh, primarily um, this is getting more common, although a few of them are, but mainly because people have, uh, di are dying less, fortunately, of infectious diseases and earlier on of cardiovascular disease. So cancer as a proportion of mortality in women is steadily increasing. And over the last few years, in, in many of the cancers I'll be talking about this year, survival has steadily improved. And a lot of that uh, is due to improvements in the science uh, and some of it is due to improvements in prevention. And over this time also, uh, one of the things that people dread most about cancer, some of the side effects of drugs and surgery have gradually got smaller uh, and less severe. But to be clear, this remains a serious diagnosis for any woman who receives it. Now, let's take the three um, cancers we're going to consider today. Last time I, discovered, I, I discussed uh, another important uh, cancer of women, in, which is cervical cancer. And these are breast cancer, um, uh, ovarian cancer, uh, and uterine, also known as womb cancer. And in terms of the numbers, breast cancer is and is likely to remain uh, the commonest cancer in women in the UK. So uh, roughly uh, 55,000, give or take, uh, women a year are diagnosed. It's, about, it's just under a third of all female cancers uh, in this country. And then the other two I'll be considering, uterine cancer is the fourth most common, and ovarian, uh, the sixth most common cancer in women. Now, throughout this talk, and indeed this series, I'm going to use three terms, and I'd just like to define them at the beginning so it's clear what I'm talking about. The first is the stage of cancer. And I'll talk about this several times and I'll illustrate that in some detail. So I won't go through that in detail now. But what that tells you is how big the cancer is and how widely it has spread. And that has very big implications for how cancer is then treated. The second thing I'm going to talk about is grade. And grade, uh, which goes usually one, two and three... The closer the cancer is to normal cells, the lower the grade. So a grade 1 cancer looks quite like the cells it came from. A grade 3 cancer looks very different. It's moved a long way away from what it originally was. And the final uh, term I'll use, although not hugely in this talk, is type. So in the breast, you can have several different types of cancer. In the uh, ovaries or around the ovaries, you can have several different types of cancer. And that means they come from different cells to begin with. And that, again, can have implications for what treatment is most appropriate. So those are the three terms I'll be using. And running through this whole talk uh, as a theme is the fact that the outlook for people who are diagnosed early for these cancers is now very good. But the outlook for people who are diagnosed later uh, is much uh, less satisfactory. And I've just highlighted here, in the dark blue, we have the proportion that are diagnosed in stage one. That is the earliest form of cancer. 
Light blue is stage two, uh, a dark purple is stage three, and the light pink is stage four. And for each of these three cancers, what you can see is the great majority of breast cancers are diagnosed in stage one or stage two. And the same, to, the same is true uh, here uh, for a uterine cancer. But ovarian cancer, which will come to third, the majority of it is diagnosed in the later two stages, stage three and stage four, and that's important for what then happens. Now, let's start off with breast cancer, which is uh, the most common. Uh, roughly one in seven women uh, in this country and most high-income countries will develop uh, this cancer in their lifetime. And I've given the number uh, earlier on. And it, generally speaking, starts in the ducts within the breast. Um, there are two uh, common types, uh, what's called invasive, no special type, and lobular cancer. The types in this situation don't really make a huge amount of difference, at least at this point in time, for treatment. Um, and it may be localised to the breast tissue. In fact, that's what you hope when you come across a breast cancer. But the next place it tends to go is to the lymph glands, the lymph nodes that actually uh, drain the breast, most of which go up here under the armpit, but they can also go down here uh, to the right side or to the centre here. So that's where cancer tends to spread next if it has actually gone beyond the breast. Men do a very occasionally get breast cancer, but the numbers are incredibly small. But to be clear, it can occasionally happen. Now, if you look at the age distribution of breast cancer, the risk per 100,000 women steadily increases in life over time, right up until someone's 90s. But because many people die before they get to their 90s, of many, often unrelated causes, the peak of uh, the burden of disease, the majority of people have, have the disease, will be from their late 40s to their late 70s. It will be in that period that most people are diagnosed. It remains actually the commonest cause of death in women between 35 and 49, but it's still very rare. So the only reason for that is other causes are so much even rarer than that. This is, would be very rare for women to die in that period. And the incidence of cancer, for reasons we'll come on to, has slowly risen over time. Not dramatically, but risen to some degree. And around a quarter of cancer is, in theory, and I want to stress that, in theory, preventable of this kind of cancer. Now, if you're diagnosed with cancer, the outlook has improved really quite markedly since the 1970s. And so uh, if you look at 10-year survival in around uh, 1970, uh, around 40% of women would survive uh, for 10 years. Uh, now we've got to a situation where almost 80% of women will survive and for practical purposes have a completely normal life 10 years later. So that is a very substantial change. So the great majority of women given the diagnosis will go on to live for the rest, uh, for a good life, uh, for uh, the indefinite uh, foreseeable future. But the survival is very heavily determined by the stage that the women are uh, when they are diagnosed. So um, these, this here on the left is the number of women, this is the absolute number of women in the UK, diagnosed at each stage. And as you can see, the great majority are diagnosed in stage one and stage two. A much smaller number here are diagnosed in the later stages. Now, in breast cancer, 
at stage three, which is the point where the mortality starts to drop quite a bit, stage three here and then stage four, just to give an idea of how advanced a stage three cancer is, it's not the most advanced, the size of the cancer would typically be the size of a lime or larger. So that's kind of that side and it will usually have spread. So the great majority of breast cancer is much less advanced than that at the point it is diagnosed. And in the UK, varies slightly by country, most cancers are diagnosed by a woman, uh, maybe her partner or a doctor, discovering it uh, by finding an abnormality, a lump somewhere. And most of these lumps are found just by self-examination. The biggest number uh, up towards the uh, armpit, uh, but they can be felt elsewhere in the breast. You can also get some changes to the skin, which are very obviously changes, not subtle ones, or changes to the nipple and discharge. These are all things that if a woman gets them, they should then go to their doctor and get uh, a proper diagnosis made. And the great majority, to be clear, the great majority of new lumps in the breast for all women are not cancer. So it is not something which people should just immediately think, OK, it's cancer. What they should think is, OK, I should probably get this checked out if it doesn't disappear relatively quickly. Now, the first thing that has led to a transformation uh, in cancer is breast screening. And uh, this is done by mammography. It's, just, it's an X-ray. It's a low-dose X-ray. Uh, and in the UK, this is done between the ages of 50 and 70. There's currently a very large trial in the UK being done in slightly younger women and in slightly older women to find out whether actually extending the age in either direction would be useful. And as with all screening... What you're trying to do is balance overdiagnosis, where you unnecessarily do biopsies and other unpleasant procedures, which clearly any woman is not going to want, and underdiagnosis, where you miss the disease. And this age group seems to give the best balance between those two. So if you look at the scale of this, uh, in the last year for which we have records, um, around two and a half women, two and a half million women were invited for screening, and of those, about 1.8 million, about 70%, actually attended uh, their screening. And if you look at the cancers in the UK, and the proportions would be slightly higher in some countries, the USA, for example, uh, roughly a third were detected at this stage. The woman didn't know she had a lump or any any kind of suspicious symptoms. She had the screening, and that identified uh, something which needed further investigation. And the estimates, just to put some ratios on this, is that for roughly every 1,200 women who are screened, one life is saved, uh, or up to uh, 1,700 lives a year. So this is an important screening programme. If you look over time and over different countries, these are all different countries. The yellow here is the USA. Uh, the uh, orange at the top here is Finland. Scandinavia is often at the best, uh, best in class when it comes to uh, public health interventions. Uh, and uh, down here are our cousins in Australia. Um, the UK is in red here. And we've been tracking along at somewhere between 70 and 75% uh, coverage for breast cancer over really quite a long period of time. And there is, uh, unfortunately, as with many uh, things in public health, a socioeconomic gradient. So people who are from less advantaged areas of the countries tend to get screened less. Not hugely less, but a bit less. Now, in terms of imaging, 
The standard way in which mammography happens in the ordinary age group is by straightforward X-ray. Uh, and what that can show uh, is little areas of calcification, little flecks of uh, very, very white uh, things you can see in the breast. Uh, you can see calcification here um, or some other changes. And then people may go on to have an ultrasound of the breast if there's something there to try and work out uh, what it is, particularly if there's a lump that hasn't shown up on X-ray to see if there's anything suspicious. It's also the other way you can look at this is the MRI scan. MRI scans are more sensitive, they pick up more abnormalities, but they also tend to pick up more false positives. So they tend to lead to women having more procedures who do not need them. And they tend to be more useful in younger women because uh, breast texture is different at different ages. Now, if a lump is found or a suspicious thing is seen on the, uh, on, on the um, screening, people will go on to, women will go on to have a, an, a, a biopsy or a needle aspirate where people do a small punch uh, into the abnormality uh, and then look at it under the microscope. This one here is what's called a fine needle aspirate which is taken through really quite a small needle. These are taken through larger biopsies. Uh, and um, not giving any great tricks of the trade of our pathology friends, in general, with all pathology, more purple than pink is bad. So that uh, is a, uh, a cystological uh, pattern uh, for a woman who's got breast cancer. But it's not just detecting whether people have got breast cancer. We can also do additionally, and I'll come back to this, important markers on the surface of the cancer which tell you what drugs they might respond to. And in particular, are they responsive to particular hormones? I'll come back to this uh, when we go on to uh, drug treatment. And then under the microscope, we, people will be looking to see what the grade of the cancer is. So here on the left, a low grade, these cancers look pretty similar to ordinary cells. You'll have to take that on trust if you're not a histologist, but it is true. On the other hand, this is distinctly abnormal. That is a high-grade cancer. It's moved a long way away from its parent cell. And this one here in the middle is halfway between the two. So stage one, stage two, stage three. So once a cancer has been diagnosed, uh, clearly we're then on to treatment. And the mainstay of treatment for the great majority of women is surgery. Surgery is the oldest and still the best way to treat breast cancer. Uh, surgery is a very old profession, uh, but it also has advanced very substantially. And three things in particular I think are worth highlighting at this stage. The first of which is major advances in identifying the spread or not of cancer from a tumour into lymph nodes. The if we're sure there are no lymph nodes infected, uh, effect affected, then we can be confident of doing much less surgery and much less treatment. That's a very important thing to know. The second thing is minimally invasive surgery, minimising the amount of uh, impact on the breast, which has both got physical and sometimes uh, social and psychological impacts uh, on women affected, and then breast reconstruction, uh, again, to minimise the impact on women's lives. So these are all areas which have improved quite significantly. Now let's take the first of those. I'm not going to go, so, uh, not going to go through all three. Uh, and that is, how do you decide how far to go in surgery? Because clearly what you want is to cut out exactly all the cancer and no more, because that minimises the impact on a woman and minimises the size of an operation. The bigger the operation, 
broadly, the bigger the risk. And the thing which has been developed is what's called sentinel node sampling. And the principle of this is actually very straightforward. Uh, the the, the tumour is identified, and then uh, the surgeon uh, or a radiologist will inject into the tumour a combination, usually, of a radioactive dye, a radioactive tracer, very short-acting radioactive tracer, and some dye. And the reason for that is the radioactive tracer means you can actually trace it using uh, a counter, Geiger counter equivalent, uh, and then the dye means if you cut out the node, you're sure you've got the right one. And what you're trying to do is find out from the tumour in which direction does this thing drain. Because the first lymph node it comes across will be the first one it affects if there is spread beyond the tumour. So that's an important thing to do. And until very recently, what you tended to have was an operation where this happened then the, uh, the pathologist would, would go away and look at this, and then some days or a week or two later, some women would need to go on to have a further operation. But increasingly, it's now possible for people to actually have this done within the, the operation so that the surgeon will know, can they do a minimal surgery or do they have to go on to do a more extended surgery in the operation and therefore uh, reduce the need to have two operations and all the trauma physically and otherwise that go with that. So that's uh, a first, the, the first major surgical advance. The second major surgical advance, very important uh, advance, uh, is a realisation that in the great majority of cancers that are at early stage, a really relatively small operation, just cutting out the cancer, is as good for survival as a much larger one. So if you'd been looking back some decades... The general principle was you had very large uh, uh, treatments uh, with uh, significant mastectomy and taking a lot of lymph nodes. Now, uh, because we can be more confident of the nodes, these operations can be much uh, smaller. And what we have here is the survival curves of women who had a full mastectomy and had a much more minimally invasive surgery. And what you can see is they are basically the same line. There is almost no difference to this over time. There's a caveat to this, so I'll come back to this. Uh, now, to be clear, these days, the survival would be much better than this. These are old data, but the reason I've chosen this is it goes back over 27 years, and even over that time, we're really not seeing significant differences. So that's surgery, the oldest. Uh, the second oldest treatment is, in fact, radiotherapy. And the first radiotherapy was given uh, back in 1896, now, the principle of radiotherapy is straightforward. If a cell is dividing, the radiotherapy waves, the radiation, is very likely to kill that cell. So cancer cells, one of the things that differentiates them is they are rapidly dividing. And therefore, if you shine radiation at them, they are likely to die, and other cells which are not dividing will not. And the main reason this is used in breast, surgery, breast cancer is if you do a small operation... You can then go on to give radiotherapy, relatively limited radiotherapy, and that will lead to results that are just as good as doing a much larger operation. So it's a way of reducing the impact of the operation on, on women uh, involved. Now, there are some major advances to radiotherapy. Uh, the big ones are the ability to reduce the dose to the minimum you need and the ability to avoid scatter around the area. So you only get radiotherapy where you want it and you don't get radiotherapy where you, where you don't. Because one of the key things about radiotherapy is essentially it's like shining a light through you, like shining a beam through you, and it only damages cells exactly where the beam goes and it doesn't damage cells anywhere else. It's a very, very specific uh, thing 
uh, which, which uh, damages cells exactly where you, the, the beams are going. Now, it doesn't just, unfortunately, damage cancer cells. It will also damage any other cell that is rapidly dividing. And in the body, those would include things like the gut, mouth, uh, armpit, uh, hair cells. Anything which has actually got rapid division is likely to be affected temporarily by radiotherapy. But the difference is the normal cells will usually recover and the cancer cells will usually not recover. And that is the key uh, advantage uh, of this uh, um, treatment. Now, we're very confident that radiotherapy improves survival and reduces recurrence. And here's uh, a, a combination of 17 trials done uh, in over 10,000 uh, women, randomised to radiotherapy or not, and very clear differences in terms of uh, recurrence rates and very clear differences in terms of survival. So there's no doubt that radiotherapy given after breast-conserving surgery is a substantial improvement. And again, the outcomes now would be better than I'm showing here. This is just to show the differences. People are understandably very worried about the, the side effects of radiotherapy. And I think one of the things I, I am very confident, and this is in contrast to chemotherapy, which I'll come on to, I'm very confident that the great majority of women and indeed the great majority of men who have radiotherapy think it is going to be a lot more dangerous than it is. That is not to say there can't be long-term problems, but the great majority of people have relatively minor side effects. Everybody tends to get short-term uh, tiredness, reddening of the skin, rather like sun, bad sunburn, and some local swelling. That's really very, very common. People aren't radioactive in any way. This light is just shone, it's like a light shining through you. Once it's off, there's no radioactivity in you at all. You will tend to get uh, loss of armpit hair in the side that it's been shone at, because the hair cells divide very rapidly, but they come back again. And if it ends up uh, being shone over the throat because the cancer cells have gone near the centre, then the throat may lead to some problems with uh, swallowing uh, and so on. And if it's on the left side, the heart may get temporarily a bit inflamed. But actually, the great majority of people have no long-term serious side effects from radiotherapy. There are serious effects. Put them here. Most of them are at a rate of less than 1%. So not, this is not to say this is a trivial uh, treatment, but this has got much less side effects, I think, than are commonly understood. So that's, uh, in a sense, relatively older treatment, the surgery and then the radiotherapy. The next really major advance uh, was the understanding that there are three subtypes of cancer that are important uh, for treatment. Uh, there is a group which is, got a, is positive for hormone receptors, which you can see by looking down a microscope having stained the cells for these receptors. And if you have this, there is very clear treatment that can be given which has a very substantial improvement in survival. Then there are some uh, women who have a different marker, uh, this one here called ERBB2, used to be called HER2, uh, and about 15 to 20% of women who have breast cancer will have this marker, and then about 15% will have neither of the above, so-called triple negatives. But there are treatments available for both of these situations. So most people um, will have a positive uh, hormone receptor for either oestrogen or progesterone, and this hormone drives the cancer. That's one of the reasons why the cancer is there in the first place. But therefore, if you give a drug which actually blocks the oestrogen uh, 
or um, then you can uh, go on to uh, have much, much lower rates of recurrence of the cancer. And the drug which most people have heard of, there are others, uh, is tamoxifen. Tamoxifen was originally developed uh, as an unsuccessful morning-after contraceptive pill. But it's got an anti-estrogen effect, and if you give this uh, drug to uh, women who've had estrogen receptor positive cancer, remember this is the majority, then they will have a much better rate of recurrence than people who do not have that drug. And these are the survival differences. So that's a very significant improvement, and these drugs have relatively modest side effects compared to the massive improvement in survival they produce. In women who are postmenopausal, who are not producing estrogen uh, from ovaries, most of the estrogen that's produced is produced in the tissues, particularly uh, fat tissues. And for postmenopausal women, therefore, a drug is used, a drug class called aromatized inhibitors, that stop the cells from producing estrogen uh, in the system. And they can reduce by about 30% uh, the chance of cancer uh, recurrence in postmenopausal women. So these are the two classes, but they're broadly doing the same thing, stopping estrogen, which drives the cancer. And they may be combined with another drug class, which I'm not going to go into. I'm just noting that this is a recent uh, advance. For people who are estrogen negative in the main, there's, there's a bit of debate about people who are estrogen positive and this positive, but for people who are estrogen negative in the main, if they've got this other driver, ERBB2, uh, there are now drugs which can block this. This also drives cancer. And if you block this, this receptor, then again the cancer rate goes down very substantially. So again, this can lead to significant improvements uh, in uh, uh, the um, uh, outcomes. So those are very major advances, and these drugs are really pretty well tolerated. Uh, the same cannot, I have to say, be said for chemotherapy. But a very small minority of, high, of early disease and a, uh, will have this. This is primarily for people who have later stage disease. Now, chemotherapy is actually, a, again, a relatively old uh, treatment. And the basic mechanisms of conventional chemotherapy are relatively straightforward. What you do is you kill cells which are dividing and then the normal cells recover and the cancer cells do not recover. That's the basic principle of chemotherapy. So it's, it's aimed at cells that are dividing and it varies by cancer type. And um, I'm not going to go through these in great detail but it's just to recognise that chemotherapy, uh, which as I say is a relatively old treatment now, has come from multiple routes. Uh, there are drugs, the methotrexate class, for example, that came from uh, the antifolates. They were discovered after it was found that folate was very important in pregnant women. This was discovered in India uh, in the 1930s. Um, the nitrogen mustards that were used for mustard gas produced a second class of drugs. There was a third class of drugs that was, uh, was isolated from bacteria dug up around this castle here, Castel del Monte, uh, the streptomyces antibiotics, also from Japan, from the same, uh, broadly the same class. And then there were some that were derived from a dye that was derived from this fungus. So they've come from multiple different areas. And then uh, these uh, drugs, which are also very important in uh, um, uterine cancer, which I'll come on to, Paclitaxel, uh, 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 which came from the Pacific U, um, uh, and 
cisplatin, rather bizarrely, uh, discovered to have cancer-fighting properties when someone decided to use a platinum electrode uh, over, um, anti- uh, over bacteria and discovered it, it inhibited the cells. And finally, one that was actually uh, derived as a chemical. But they've come from multiple different routes, and including, uh, to make an important point, from uh, many plants. And I think people think of herbal drugs as somehow... Uh, sort of safe and cuddly and uh, easy, uh, many of the chemotherapy plants are actually, chemotherapy drugs are in fact plant derivatives. Now, the mechanisms by which they work uh, vary, but what they work at is at multiple points along the cell division, cy- division cycle. The point about this is chemotherapy drugs kill cells that are dividing. That is their key property. And they do this by a variety of different mechanisms. Chemotherapy is understandably uh, really dreaded by uh, women and others for other cancers who are undergoing treatment. And the thing to understand about the side effects is is the biggest impact of chemotherapy is on the cancer cells that are dividing, but also on other cells that are dividing. And that includes the gut, hair follicles, the mouth, the skin, uh, and bone marrow. Those tend to be uh, areas that are affected. So because of the effects on the gut and for a variety of other reasons, substantial problems with nausea and vomiting. Hair loss is very common, and because of suppression in the bone marrow, uh, we can have immune system uh, reduction, so people actually have problems with infections. This is because these drugs kill or damage cells that are dividing, and that's what these tissues do. It's a temporary effect... Uh, but very unpleasant uh, when it happens. And this is something, if people are undergoing it, they'll want to talk through with their doctors and nurses uh, in some detail. Now, we're continuing to make improvements on breast cancer treatment, Um, uh, improvements in hormone treatment, combinations in radiotherapy and chemotherapy, and we're also developing new drugs which are not yet widely used, but I think this is, as I discussed in the last talk I gave, the cutting edge of cancer treatment. Increasingly, I think, we'll look for advanced disease, less so for early disease, in immunotherapy. And this is just an example uh, a tumour infiltrating lymphocyte, sardine again. People want to look at the details of how immune therapy works. The last talk I gave is online on the Gresham site. This is pre-treatment. These little black dots are uh, breast cancer. Uh, and this is post-treatment, 14 months later. And these have gone away. So the immunotherapy uh, is a very exciting uh, direction of travel for people with late disease. But clearly, much better is early diagnosis, where you don't need to have these spreads. Uh, And then even better is prevention. So let me just briefly talk about prevention. The first thing that uh, people probably know is that for some women, there is a significant genetic risk. And this has been particularly made uh, well-known by Angelina Jolie, who uh, uh, made well-known these genes here, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Great majority of women do not have these. It's passed on in an autosomal dominant way. Uh, but a roughly between 5 and 15% of breast cancer is hereditary. And these, sorry, and these are the most important uh, um, uh, ones to have. And if people have got a mutated BRCA1 gene, then by 70, just over half of women will have breast cancer, a much higher proportion than the 12% who have normal Uh, And if it's BRCA2, it's just under half. So it's really quite a substantially increased risk. And for these, and then there are a number of other genes, which I won't go through, which also increase the risk. If a woman has got one of these, there are a variety of things that can be done 
of which the most minimalist is just to screen them regularly, possibly yearly, from a very young age, and then intervene if a cancer is available, to consider giving treatment early on prophylactically, and in some cases, but this uh, would be definitely a minority, to consider actually having prophylactic mastectomy, which is what Angelina Joni did, which is the reason I think most people are aware of it. So that's um, one group where prevention is around, early, is around intensive screening. There's a further familial group where roughly 15 to 20% it runs in families but not on a gene that we know of, probably several genes that come together. And again, for these uh, families, uh, enhanced screening is probably the way to prevent these or more accurately pick them up early. The second uh, risk is alcohol. Um, alcohol is probably responsible for around 8% of breast cancer in the UK. And to be clear, if you've had breast cancer and you drank some alcohol, it's very unlikely that this was the driver. But to be also clear, alcohol can lead to an increase in breast cancer risk. If you look at UK uh, numbers, um, uh, light drinkers uh, are less than uh, 12.5 grams a day, slightly arbitrary. Uh, heavy drinkers are seen to be uh, greater than 50 grams a day. Uh, and uh, the relative risk for the epidemiologists, 1.6 times the risk uh, if you're a heavy drinker compared to if you have no alcohol at all. Probably more understandable if you think about this study here, the Million Women study. And what that said is by 80 years old, if you don't drink at all, 9 out of 100 women will get breast cancer. If you're a light drinker, two drinks a day, 10 out of 100. Small increase, but an increase. Uh, and if you are a heavier drinker, six drinks a day, 13 out of 100. So there's no doubt there's a link, yet, but the great majority of breast cancer, even in people who drink alcohol, is unrelated. A second uh, risk factor that people worry about is HRT, hormone replacement therapy, and this tends to uh, get in and out of the newspapers uh, really quite frequently. I think the clear thing to understand about this is that um, estrogen, posi estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive breast cancer is driven by female hormones. And therefore, unsurprisingly, if you give female hormones, you have a slightly higher risk of developing the breast cancer. That it follows uh, completely logically because of the biology. And I think what we can say with some confidence is if you have a short course of HRT, it has almost no effect on your increase on increasing the risk of uh, breast cancer. But it does start to increase if people have it for substantial periods of time, 10, 15 years, you're starting to see increases in risk. Not massive increases, uh, but not uh, trivial risks either. And if you then stop it, uh, the risk then goes away. Now, to be clear, there are many advantages to HRT uh, in other areas of health. So I, I, this is not to say people should not be taking HRT for long periods. You just need to discuss it if it's for a long period uh, with your doctor, because there are pros and cons for longer periods. And then um, there is a, an association uh, between obesity and overweight and postmenopausal breast cancer. It's not, again, a huge association, but it's definitely there. And again, the biology is easy to understand. Because the fat tissue is where a lot of the estrogen is produced postmenopausally, if women have more fat tissue, then postmenopausally they have a slightly increased risk of breast cancer. This is not true, however, premenopausally. Where this is important, however, is in the next cancer I'm going to talk about, endometrial or womb cancer. And here it does really increase the risk quite a bit. So um, womb cancer, uterine cancer, 
uh, is also is, um, the second uh, one uh, uh, I want to look at. In the UK, just under 10,000 cases uh, a year, fourth most common cancer in women. And the great majority, when this is a very good thing, are diagnosed in stage one, early disease, when the cancer is near the lining of the womb, because people bleed. And they bleed abnormally, either between their periods or if it's postmenopause or bleeding when they're not expecting to be bleeding. Now, the great majority of bleeding postmenopausally is not cancer. But again, if someone is bleeding uh, postmenopausally, then they need to get that checked out. Because if you treat this, uh, this cancer early, uh, the outlook is very good in terms of uh, long-term survival and health. Uh, and if it's treated later, obviously that's not tr so true. So 95% of women with stage 1 will survive more than five years. Uh, and around 78% of all patients will survive for more than 10 years. So the great majority of women, again, will survive for a decade or more. Uh, and not have longer-term problems with their cancer. The peak age for this cancer is in 60s to late 70s, so it's slightly, uh, it, it doesn't uh, carry on progressing uh, beyond that, and the survival has been steadily improving over time. Uh, but like breast cancer, the outlook varies by which stage it's caught in. If it's caught in stage 1 here, then the great majority, over 90, well over 90%, five-year survival. If it's stage three or four, this is stage three, which is spread very widely, then the outlook is much less good. And the mainstay of treatment, particularly for early disease, is surgery. And the surgery is uh, to remove uh, the ovaries and the womb uh, and uh, stop that. Um, depending on how far it's gone, the surgery may have to be more or less uh, radical. Uh, and uh, sometimes um, if women are premenopausal, uh, they may just uh, have a more limited, um, uh, more limited surgery. And this can now mainly be done by laparoscopic keyhole surgery. So it's a, not a trivial operation, but it can be done by keyhole and recovery rates are often uh, really quite rapid. Some women, not the majority, will need to go on to have either chemotherapy or radiotherapy. And this can either be given by external beam, like here, or given by what's called brachytherapy, where it's given very locally so it doesn't spread so, so, so widely. The side effects are, are broadly the same, but they are, are localised. The further advanced in stage the cancer is, the more the treatment is going to depend on radiotherapy and drugs. And the chemotherapy for this is very similar to breast cancer. But to be clear, the great majority of people are actually diagnosed um, uh, early in disease. And finally, hormone therapy does have a role, but in a minority. So this is very different from breast cancer, where hormone therapy is the majority. This is a minority and usually of more advanced treatment. And it is useful, uh, but it doesn't have the same dramatic effects um, that tamoxifen and other hormone treatments do in breast cancer. The risk factors for uterine cancer are largely related to uh, female hormone and particularly oestrogen. So obesity is a significant risk factor because that is the tissue in which oestrogen is produced postmenopausally. Oestrogen-only HRT can have uh, some effect. Conversely, because it combines the two uh, hormones and uh, controls uh, the uh, cycle to some degree, the, the combined oral contraceptive pill is actually protective uh, in, uh, uh, of uterine cancer, as is pregnancy, probably because oestrogen levels are lower during the period a woman uh, is pregnant. Bit of an increased risk of polycystic ovaries, again, because of uh, ovary drive. 
a little bit in diabetes, and the universal thing to do, which is good for everybody, exercise, is also protective. Finally, um, I'll move on to ovarian cancer. And here, you know, previously, the great majority of people are diagnosed early in breast cancer and uterine cancer, and the great majority will survive 10 years or more. Uterine, as ovarian cancer, the outlook is much less good. Age uh, is the major risk factor. Uh, family history can increase the risk, but to be clear, most women who have a relative with ovarian cancer will not get ovarian cancer. This is, this is a relatively uh, infrequent cancer. And these two um, mutations, BRCA1 and 2, and something called Lynch syndrome, also significantly increase the risk. And there's a slight increased risk of diabetes, overweight, extended HRT, but they're really quite slight. And rather like uterine, slight reductions with contraception and pregnancy. The key point about this is that this is not getting more common, but the problem we have is that less than 50% of the cases are diagnosed in stage 1 and stage 2. If you are diagnosed in stage 1 or stage 2 ovarian cancer, then the outlook is actually very good. The problem is that diagnosis is late in stages 3 and stages 4. And for the early stage cancers, surgery is the mainstay. So if you've got early disease... That means that the cancer is confined to the ovaries. If you're late-stage disease, it means it's spread uh, more, la- more widely. Now, I just want to compare numbers for the three cancers I've talked about. Here's breast cancer. The great majority are actually diagnosed in stage 1 or stage 2. Around 4,000 stage 3, around 2,000 stage 4. Ovarian cancer, much smaller numbers but the proportions diagnosed in the late stages, the numbers rather, diagnosed in late stages, are comparable. They're not quite as high, but they're definitely there because of difficulties of diagnosis. So the obvious thing we need to do with ovarian cancer is to get earlier diagnosis. And what we've tried to do with ovarian cancer is to go on to have screening, which can lead to early disease pickup, as we have for breast cancer. And various things have been tried, including a blood test, this blood test called CA125, and ultrasound, transvaginal ultrasound. Unfortunately, when we've done big trials of this, these screening modalities have not led to a significantly increased improvement in survival or cancer pickup. Very slight increase, but really very little. So the screening we have at the moment is not leading to an earlier diagnosis. And what this clearly tells us is we've got to get better treatments for late disease, but we've certainly got to get better tests and better screening pathways so women are picked up much earlier in their disease. So it does have to depend on people spotting and getting investigated their symptoms, and these are relatively general. Feeling constantly bloated, swollen abdomen, discomfort, uh, feeling full when eating needing to pass urine more often than usual. If people have this repeatedly, this is something to discuss uh, with a doctor, but they are relatively nonspecific. Very few people in the audience, men or women, will not occasionally have had these symptoms. So this, is, this does make it uh, relatively difficult uh, to pick up early. In early stage, the treatment is surgery um, and uh, can be relatively uh, limited. Um, In late stage, treatment is primarily around chemotherapy, and that includes two of the drugs I've previously talked about. A drug here, um, gemcitabine, which is originally developed as an antiviral, in fact, and then repurposed for this. 
Uh, this drug, atopicide, originally derived from the wild mandrake, and people who read uh, books, including Herbals, but also Harry Potter, will be aware that this, uh, drug, this uh, particular plant has been perceived to have magical um, uh, proper, uh, medicinal properties ever since it's been described, largely because it looks like humans if you pull it up. Uh, and uh, this, does act, this drug is a very major part of it. And then another drug derived from the bark of this tree, which grows in Tibet and southern China. Uh, translated as the happy tree. Over time, trends in survival for ovarian cancer have gone up, but they've gone up from a very low level to a fairly low level. So it's improving, but it's improving slowly. So pretty clearly, ovarian cancer is a major target now for us for early uh, diagnosis and better treatment. This uh, is an area we really do need significantly to improve. And this is therefore obviously an important area for the big class of drugs in immunotherapy that we talked about in the last session. Finally, uh, before I wrap up, just to say uh, where, are we, where are we going to be going. So at the moment, we're treating these cancers uh, very often as, as, kind of as a group, depending, depending on where they are. Increasingly, treatment is going over time to be directed at different subtypes of cancer. So we'll find lots of different subtypes with different sorts of treatment. Uh, and that will lead, uh, over time, to a uh, further improvement in survival. We're also going to have some differentiation on the basis of the genotype. And in particular, that's going to be important in uh, later disease. And the UK is in the lead in many of the areas in trying to improve uh, understanding of genotypes. So my summary uh, of uh, these cancers, uh, these three cancers, and then the fourth cervical, cervical cancer, which I talked about last time, almost exclusively in women, breast cancer, screening, early surgery, radiotherapy, and hormone therapy have massively changed the outlook. And now there's a 78% 10-year survival, and that is continuing to improve. So I'm very confident this will go north of 80%. Uterine cancer generally diagnosed early, at which stage the outlook is very good. Again, almost 80% survival uh, at 10 years. Ovarian cancer, good outlook with early diagnosis, but unfortunately most people are diagnosed late, and herein lies the big problem with ovarian cancer. It's a rarer cancer, but a major cause of uh, death because of this. And finally, cervical cancer, which I talked about last time round, screening has significantly reduced mortality from this cancer. It's now picked up much earlier. And if we look forward 20 to 30 years, it will start to see significantly dropping rates because vaccine in children of HPV is going to lead to this disease going away over time. I would finally just like to pay tribute that the enormous improvements that we've seen over the last three decades have depended on millions of women taking part in trials, studies and other things that have meant that subsequent generations of women will have better treatment. And uh, also uh, to uh, say what an extraordinary uh, achievement scientifically these improvements have been. And I'd like to highlight in particular two of the uh, great scientists uh, of the last century, uh, Marie Curie, uh, double Nobel Prize winner, not in fact for medicine, died as a result of the radiation which she produced, but radiotherapy very heavily based on her work. Uh, and Rosalind Franklin, who should have got a Nobel Prize but didn't, uh, who died of ovarian cancer, possibly also brought on by x-rays, uh, and uh, to which she was very heavily exposed, uh, who will, whose work underlies a lot of what we're going to go through in the future with genetic treatments. 
So th three stroke four cancers, very major ones, major advances in three of them, breast, uh, uterine and cervical, uh, and slow progress, although steady progress, in the fourth ovarian cancer. Thank you very much.